Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. I try to focus on the positives, not the negatives. Every player has doubts. Every player has weaknesses. But the great ones can turn those into strengths. Is a quote by former world number one and 20-time Grand Slam winner, the Swiss maestro Roger Federer. I thought this was an apt quote for our guest today. A former top-ranked amateur tennis player who ultimately scaled the heights of global tennis administration. Our guest today is Chief Executive Officer of Tennis Australia and Australian Open Tournament Director Craig Tiley. Raised in South Africa, Craig was a standout junior tennis player who studied economics at Stellenbosch University and later served with merit in the South African Army. Returning to tennis, Craig enrolled in the Professional Tennis Management Program at the University of Texas while he completed a master's degree in kinesiology. Craig was also a director and later the head coach at the Atkins Tennis Center at the University of Illinois, which he led a tournament record of consecutive wins. Craig served as the captain of the South Africa Davis Cup team for three years before moving into administration as the director of player development at Tennis Australia and then as director of the Australian Open before becoming chief executive officer of Tennis Australia. Craig is the chair of the Coalition of Major Professional and Participation Sports in Australia and is on the board of Safety, Culture and Rising. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you can apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in South Africa, the United States, and Australia, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner and Blenheim Partners, board and executive search firm. In a captivating discussion, Craig takes us through the suspense, anticipation, and nerves of walking onto the centre court to play before an audience of over 1 billion people worldwide. He elaborates on the business of tennis and reveals some new initiatives for the Australian Open throughout 2024 to 2025 with the aim of consolidating the tournament as a premier global sporting event while also offering world-class hospitality, entertainment, retail and merchandise. Craig also touches on his start in life in South Africa and how he fell in love with tennis as a highly talented junior and discusses his move into coaching in the United States as well as his leadership philosophy of taking risks, thriving on competition and constantly seeking improvement. Craig sets out his ambitions for the Australian Open under his stewardship and lastly shares some behind-the-scenes tales 
from current and past greats. So sit back and enjoy. Put it on the line. Craig, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Sunny afternoon in Melbourne. As we're about to commence the Australian Open and watch the players make the walk down the corridor, passing the names of Rod Laver, Margaret Court, and finally passing Irina Sabalinka and Novak Djokovic on their way to centre court for the final of the Australian Open over two nights. That's the nice stuff. That's the shiny stuff we see. Craig, what's going on behind the scenes? What did it take to get to that point? You did say there's a limit on this podcast, and if I were to go through everything that's going on behind the scenes, we would have to have no limit because uh, the, uh, there's an unbelievable amount of stuff that goes on uh, behind the scenes. So there's there's three main groups that you've got to manage. There's the fans, of which we have you know, close to a million that come over the two weeks. There's your global audience, which is over a billion now that watch the Australian Open, over 205 countries and territories. And then, of course, over 800 players. Every single player is an entourage of people that you've got to manage and you've got to take care of. Every single player has different needs. They're independent contractors. And so it's, it's, it's a massive logistical exercise. And you can be guaranteed in that period you're going to have humans are very good. They know how to do some stupid things that will keep you busy uh, managing them. And, uh, and then there's at the same time as providing your audience and your fans uh, an unbelievable experience that they want to come back every year, year on year. And we're very proud of the fact that players love the Australian Open. They love coming to Melbourne. They love coming to Australia. Uh, we get guests from around the world, pretty much every country in the world. We're probably one of the events in the world that's the most visited internationally. And in the month of January, there isn't any bigger event globally than is the Australian Open. So there's a lot of pressure on us to deliver it and deliver it well. And, you know, there's, there's many things that happen behind the scenes that are often hard to predict. You write, you write out your risk register. And I've always advised our team, we can go do as much work as we can on our risk framework, our risk register, be responsive to the framework. And, uh, and then something comes up that we haven't thought of. You know, in recent years, no one thought of the fact that we would have dirty rain. We would actually have water falling out of the sky that was mud by the time it landed on the ground. And it basically yeah, covered right. the courts in mud. It took us a day and a half to clear the mud. No one would have thought the bushfires we have would create smog in the atmosphere to the extent that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, that you couldn't be able to play. And we had to postpone that. No one predicted COVID. Of course, everyone knows the global stories that happened with us and Novak Djokovic around vaccination and, and the quarantining program for athletes. You know, you put an athlete, a high performing athlete in a room for 15 days. That's a hard place to keep them when they're getting ready to perform at their, at their best. So there's more things over the last five, five years, I'd say, that have happened than ever before in the history of the Australian Open as far as challenges. And so you've got to be prepared, you've got to be agile, you've got to be flexible, and you've got to be ready to accept the fact that maybe something you have planned for is not going to happen because something else is going to happen. So when do you start the planning? How far how far ahead are we? Once the tournament finishes, yeah, we, we starting we've for the next one. We've like, already when, thought about twenty twenty-five, uh, but we've kind of we've kind of shelved right? our thinking. A few months ago, we've shelved our thinking and started delivering on twenty twenty-four. So our cycle works really two years ahead. Uh, we think creatively about what can we do for twenty twenty-five, what can we do for twenty twenty-six, because we have the philosophically at least the experience the fans are going to have. Half of it's going to change year on year. At least half of it's going to change on site. So when you come on site in twenty twenty-three, you're going to have most of your experience in 2024 is going to be different and it's designed to be that way. So our return rate on our, we've had some fans that have been coming for 40 years, the Australian Open. So we got to, to do that. You got to plan ahead. You got to be, you got to plan for change. I always remind the team, I said, the pain of change is greater than the pain of losing. Often people would prefer to lose than they would to change because change is hard. But if you create an organization where you're delivering to your fans 
an environment of change, then you just become, you have a culture and you just be accustomed to its ongoing change. And, and I'm also proud of the fact that we're able to deliver products and services to our fans that will continue to pay to come and get that experience. And, and they're paying more. You know, the premium experiences have grown probably faster than any other segment or category when it comes to entertaining people. That's what it is, isn't it now? It is. Entertainment? It is. A, it used to be a sporting event. It used to be a great sporting event, you know, about tennis, about the tennis yeah. champions of the world. And there was a time when the Australian Open, the top stars wouldn't come and visit. And, the, and my pre- predecessors had done a good job on, on making sure we got the top stars here and we started to get them more regularly. And then things really started to shift uh, probably about, you know, 15 years ago, uh, where we always were guaranteed to get the top stars. And then they started to shift even more. Now, I've been on this job now since 2014 was my first Australian Open as the CEO. And, and these 10 years, and the very first thing we did is put a team together that was outside of tennis and uh, said, okay, bring your ideas into this. Let's not be, let's not be about tennis. Let's be about having a great time. Let's be the happy slam. Uh, let's be a fun place for people to, to come out, sun shining, beautiful weather. We've got the Melbourne hospitality and uh and come and have a good time and and now at least 30 40 percent of our fans come to the site don't even watch tennis craig so without giving away too much then and you talk about the tremendous amount of change you make year on year well we're not too far away from it all what would the fans or what could the fans potentially expect which is different to, to, to yesterday so there's going to be a lot of new things first of all we want to get to a position where we want to try, try and stick every one of our patrons that sits and watches tennis gets out on the grounds in the shade so we've added 300% more shade than we've ever had before. So you're going to see areas, big open areas, big open fields with these massive shade structures. I think if you take out two shade structures, there's no shade structure in the world that is as big as the, as the ones we've got. Um, we also decided we want to bring the fans closer to the action. So we've built this two-story bar around the outside courts or the back of the outside courts where our ground pass holders can go up the second story, can be on the first story, can be sitting at the bar, sitting at a table, having a drink, having something to eat looking over their shoulder, the action right next to them. Probably be noisy, so the players may have to get a bit used to it, but it's trying to, it's democratizing the sport a little bit with the fans and trying to bring the fans and the players a lot, a lot closer together. We also know that when our fans come from around the world, they want to keep taking mementos for them. And so growing our retail and, and developing this mega store and this mega environment where you can enjoy merch, enjoy retail, take mementos with you, it's all become experiential. And, uh, and then of course, bringing in different chefs from around the world. We, lucky in Australia, we have some of the best chefs globally. So all the best ones are participating in the Australian Open. We brought a few few out globally. There's over 40 of them from different parts of the world that will be offering their products on site. And, and you can go to any kind of restaurant. You can go to the seven-star restaurant or you can you can go to a kiosk and go and get the, your, your chips and, and hot dog. And so uh, so the entire range is covered. Um, and, and our fans are going to see new restaurants, new opportunities. And at the same time, they're going to be able to try new sports, paddle tennis and pop tennis and and swing ball and uh, totem tennis and and uh, we want them to come out and not only sit down have a drink have something to eat but go out and have a go with some stuff go and watch some of the greats of the game and we want the greats of the game to be walking amongst them and that's why we we take our players you know through the fans to where they're going to compete so if you're giving me a holistic view of let's use some terms which are pretty catchy these days the ecosystem so the ecosystem of tennis in this country on this particular point of time from both the player's perspective and the customer or the spectator's perspective, but the broader customer when you're talking ecosystem, how would you sort of sum that or paint pictures in my mind? Where does it begin? Where does it end? 
And, and we're using the vehicle technology, I assume. I think I, I'll, I'll create a bit of a picture and a vision on this. I mean, first of all, your comment on ecosystem, it's kind of like the word pivot that was used during during, during, <laughs> during COVID. Well, we were using innovation pretty soon. Then we really hit the we, bottom. We've really got a new word that everyone's latest, latest catchphrase. But but in this case, in this case, um, if, if, if I was to step into the next few years of the Australian Open, I'd want you to have this type of experience. So this is what we're going to aspire towards. And they'll be able then they'll be able to step back and talk a little bit about where we're at today. But I want you to be able to come on site, not have to go through security, not have to take your phone out to basically check to see if you've got a ticket because it's already been checked and scanned automatically. Get on site through very effective push notifications and wayfinding, find exactly where your seat is or the place you want to be entertained. Go to that spot. Within a few minutes, someone sends you another notification saying, Greg. Great to have you back at a sporting event. We noticed you haven't been here the last six months. We know what you like. We know you love the, you know, uh, a cheeseburger loaded with some extra cheese and uh, and some extra vegetables, tomatoes and lettuce on it. We can get that to you if if you want to order it. We can get it to you now. Here's a list of other options you can have. You may want to like to try. You can come pick it up. There's no wait. Uh, but we can bring it to you now. So oh, I'll have this. You go and order it. Bring it to you. And then an hour later, another push notification. If you go to the retail in the next twenty minutes. It's 30% off at retail. You go into retail, you get whatever you want. You just walk out, you put it in, a, in, in your own bag, a bag that's given to you. Go back and sit down, enjoy the game, go and have some in, in more drinks. And then about to leave the site, you want to leave and you get another push. Right? You're leaving now. There's a car at the southeast corner at, at section number 3B. Go and stand right there. The car will pick you up, take you home. And then on your way home, you get your final push notification. Greg, it was great to have you back at the tennis. It was great to have you in an event. We've got another idea for you. You want to go to you want to go to a, a, a footy event, or you want to go to another event? We can help you get there. Or tennis next year, we will get you there. And by the way, if you pay your thousand uh, dollar fee that you've money you've just spent today, you didn't know you spent, but uh, within the next two days, there's no surcharge done. So a completely seamless, motivated experience based on the personalization of every offer uh, that we could bring into the entertainment ecosystem. And that's an aspiration we want to get to. Uh, you've got to have the tech that backs that up. There are some stadiums in the U.S. that are offering parts of that. We may even bring you a hamburger to you by a drone, which we probably will, so you don't have to go and get it. Someone will br- And someone Not will really. bring it to you because it may be too difficult to have so many people bringing food to every customer, so a drone may bring it to you. And uh, and as far as security and go, when, you, when we first engaged with you, and you bought your ticket, we would have checked your security and your background and we would have known you, you were going to be fine coming in. We don't have to worry about what you're going to bring in. But it's interesting, as you change and you use technology to change, there's also there's a flip side to that change. For example, that if we had face, uh, face recognition entry into the grounds and you never had to check your phone, we lose opportunities to upsell you because the, the, the research tells you today that you check your, your device uh, if you've got a ticket on it, 18 times before you actually go into the stadium or before you sit down. And so that's 18 opportunities to do some form of communication or upsell. So so you've got to always be thinking about what's on the backside of the, the great uh, aspirations for using technology to change an experience. But but we're going to be an event. We're going to be a, we're going to be a property that's going to continue to push the boundaries. And, uh, and I would ultimately like to have an aspiration where the next podcast you and I have, you said, you know that thing you spoke about a few years ago? That, that was my experience. What do we have from the player's perspective? From a player's perspective is that, you know, I think the we're going through a transition now. We've, we've enjoyed the Serena Williams and the Venus Williams and even the Ash, and the Ash body, and we've enjoyed the Roger Federer, the Rafa Nadal, Novak Djokovic. They were 
some are retired, some are in retirement phase of their life. The younger ones coming up, I'm really excited about some of the younger players that are coming. It's a lot more of them, exciting personalities, great backgrounds, good people. So from a player's perspective, we're going to see a lot more of that. But from from their experience perspective, is it has to completely change. Each of them have different performance needs, whether it be in, in pre-match preparation, whether it be during match, post-match, whether it be more focused on the physical element, more the mental element, you know, more the nutritional element, more the technical, biomechanical. There's a whole bunch of elements that can be focused on. So we've got to have a whole ecosystem, a whole environment set up here where every single one of those needs are met. Today, if you're a player, you can get a pedicure, you can get a haircut, you can get a massage, you can you can get yourself in an MRI machine and get a complete full body scan. You can get any treatment from the best orthopedes or the, the best general practitioners already here on site. You can, go, you can get a dentist here on site, you can, get a, you can get a podiatrist. So anything you need now already exists on site. But as yeah, the right. time goes on, that's going to have to be even more personalized. So we would know beforehand exactly what your issues are and we'll have a team ready to address those issues as you're ready to compete because the stakes are now high. So over 4 million bucks, you're going to get to play seven matches to win it. And there's probably another about 30, 40 million dollars of direct value to you through your partners, your sponsors. So these are multi-million dollar outcomes. And so if you don't get specifically to the needs of the athlete in this high performing athlete, of which there's 800 of them, you're going to eventually lose the game. So, uh, so that, you know, you need infrastructure to do that. You need capability to do that. And you need to put teams together, leadership teams together that are the best of the best. So the business of tennis. Is it in good shape? I think it's in great shape. I mean, of course, I'd say that, right? Because I'm in charge of tennis. Um, <laughs> but it's a, it's a, but it, but even more broadly, you know, globally, is it in good well, shape? This is the opportunity. So let me talk about Australia first. Is that uh, we've seen year on year, COVID was was a very helpful thing for tennis because it's one of the few sports you could go out and play, and we saw our biggest growth in the history of the sport during COVID. But I also got to, I also yeah, got right. to credit our team because they had a lot of, during that period. They had a lot of foundational work being done. We're still seeing increases. We had, this past year, there was close to a 10% increase in the number of young kids under the age of 15 coming new into the game. Most sports are not enjoying that, that growth. Most sports are actually either a level or in a decline. That's in Australia. In Australia, talking. I'm talking about. And these, these yep. aren't our numbers. These are numbers that are done by the government. Now, globally. And that's without, we don't have too many superstars at the moment playing the game yeah, either. I get, I get that a lot. I get that. Which is I interesting. I get that at a local cafe uh, when some guy comes and gives me advice on what we need to do to develop, develop players. <laughs> and, uh, and, no, but you know, you know how often that, that generates the grassroots, yeah, no, doesn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. I mean, having Australian players, Ash Boy is a good example. I mean, yeah. I, I do remember a conversation I had in, uh, in 2012 where, a former male tennis player in Australia said to me, we haven't won a Grand Slam since since Mark Edmondson did. I said, no, last year, Sam Stosen in 2011 won the US Open. Uh, Ash Barty won the, won the Australian Open 2022. So, so we've had, we've had success in winning slams. We've got nine players in the top 100 on the men's side, the most we've had in a long, long time, which is really okay. healthy. Don't have enough on the women's side. Got a few. We've got three of our players significantly uh, that have injuries. That is that, that is significant. If you put Nick Kyrgios back in there, we've got ten players in the top one hundred. So I think we've got a greater cohort, a lot of younger players coming through more than we've ever had before. We just don't yet have the Leighton Hewitt of the world that was getting number one in the world and was and was so great and successful. The Pat Rafters of the world and obviously all the greats before him. We had a golden age in this in the fifties, sixties. In fact, here's a good stat for you, Greg. In nineteen fifty six. Uh, Adrian Quist was a great tennis player, and he made a public announcement globally. He said, I think Australia should not play the Davis Cup competition this year so we can give another country a chance to win it. That's how good we were. Uh, he wasn't being cocky. He was just saying how good we were. 
Yeah, but don't forget, smaller world. Yeah, probably a smaller world. It's a bigger world now. It's an look, e- look, 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 look at the dynamics now. Yeah. Look at the Eastern Europeans have come in, the emerging countries have opened. The game has changed, has it not? The game has changed. The game's changed a lot, you know, and I think the, you know, we've had more countries come up. There's, we'll have, yep. we'll have, we'll have more countries represent the Australian Open this year than we've had every other year, any other year. So, so I think so this right. is going to be, this, this is just, it's become very global. I mean, America, America, Australia and the United Kingdom used to dominate tennis. Uh, Spaniards yep. came along, sort of things started to change. There's no country now that dominates the game. And yet we're still ten- – and you're saying the grassroots have increased by 10%. Yeah, so I think because it used to be grassroots didn't happen unless an Australian was doing well. Now grassroots happen if you get a global superstar. Roger Federer drives participation. Serena Williams drives participation. And so now it's just the global spot. So on tennis. And that's similar in basketball. It'll be similar in other sports. And, you know, we're very, we're very lucky in Australia. We've got uh, – everyone plays sport, you know, summer, winter – Everyone's out there doing exercise as part of our ethos, part of our DNA. And we've got great sports that are just Australian, NRL, you know, AFL, Nepal. I mean, there's a bit of global to them as well, but, but, uh, you know, these are great sports for us to participate and watch. And so my view is if there's a kid out there going to play footy, that's good for tennis because there's also a chance to play tennis. So Roger Federer termed it, was it the happy slam? The happy slam, 2017. Good year. Okay. Well, firstly, congratulations for being getting that title. That's one achievement in itself. Yeah. How do you build it and maintain it? That's a challenge because a lot of disruption out there, um, and we can and competition. Talk, we can talk and competition. Well, there's competition for for your your eyeballs and your interest, and there hasn't been a year we haven't grown. Even during COVID, we made a massive challenge. So to maintain it, there's there's a few things you got to do, and I think as in any business, you got to do this. The first thing that you got to do is. Don't focus on the competition. Focus on what you do well and keep evolving and in a, in, innovate on the things you do well. I used to be a tennis coach. Mm. The players I worked with, I didn't spend all my time on their weaknesses. I spent all my time on their strengths because I wanted their strengths to be stronger. And so as a player, if you do that, do that in your business. Make, make your strengths stronger. Keep with those strengths. Keep innovating. Keep changing. Keep the agility of the people that work around that and keep managing to the impossible. And as a leader of an organization, you talk about the impossible. You talk about what is po- what, what we can achieve, but then you also talk about the impossible and the aspiration to get there. And then you have your team figure out the best way to get there. And I think I'm proud that we've got it. We've got a team of highly capable people that are from other industries. And in, in our leadership team, there's no one from tennis. They all come from Disney or from entertainment industry, from partnering in, 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 in consulting firms, from MMA, I mean, there's a bunch of different different skill sets that have come in from mining. The list goes on from FMCG. And I'm glad we brought this eclectic group together to say, all right, let's give this thing a go. Encouraging mistakes and just make sure they're not failure by repeating them, but encouraging mistakes because if you're not making mistakes, you're not going for it. And so create an environment where that can, can happen. And, and that's a bit cliche. Everyone talks about it, but it's not that easy to to actually lead to enable that to happen. So what do you think differentiates us? I think what differentiates the slam, we are the happy slam. The sun is shining. Southern Hemisphere, January is a good place to be. Australians do a very good job on, on entertainment, very good job. They're welcoming, love having people from other countries come to, to stay. We want them to stay longer. So I think there's a lot of things. We've got a venue that's right next to the city. We've got a government here, a state government. There's a day, great job supporting sport in the state. So I think there's a lot of positives. So we inherently have a lot of foundational positives, but those don't work unless you can come over the top and provide a product that people really want to participate and cannot miss out on. 
Greg, we have 40% of our audience that if you ask them, why do you come to Australian Open? They say, because. Just because. And uh, there's no reason. It's just what they do. And so we're lucky. And you've got to build that base where you don't have to do much and that's going to happen. So to do that, I think you've, you've got to keep introducing different products. You've got to keep, you've got to keep globalizing the business. There's a, there's a massive potential for disruption that's going on in our sport of tennis, just like happened in golf. Where does the power reside? The players, the managers, or, or the, or the, um, management? You know your subject because uh, the, uh, you ask that type of question. My, my, well, I it's fascinating, from, isn't it? Basically, you're, it is. you're in the world of entertainment. Correct. I, I, my view is the, is I, I come from the player side of, yep. of the sport yep. and, um, and I think the content is the power. And so that's the player, that's the entertainer, that's the singer, that's the dancer, that's the, if they use their power in an uncoordinated way, they don't have any power. Um, if they use their power in a coordinated way, and I think where, where often the players make mistakes is they forget about the fan. And if you can get a playing group that really is focused and in tune to what the fan wants and you can put those together, you've got a winner. And every sport makes that mistake. The, the administrators first make the biggest mistake because they've, they've got different objectives and they've got to try and bring the player and the fan together. And there's some, there's some good shining lights in that. But, you know, ultimately the player, the content has the power and it has even, it is even more power if it, if that content, that player puts the fans before themselves. What's the beauty of tennis compared to all that competition, all that other entertainment, all those other sports? What do you love about tennis? You can play the sport. I was taught by my great uncle and he was 95 years old, still teaching me on the court how to play the game. So I, I, I challenge anyone that can pick a sport that you can play from cradle to grave pretty much. And, uh, you don't have to be good. You can do singles. You can do doubles. You can do men. You can do women. You can, you can sit on the side of the court and do it social and hit one ball. You can miss every ball and still have a bit of exercise together with soccer. It's the two sports that are registered with the federation in every single country in the world. It's the only two. And many people don't know about tennis. We naturally assume that with football, soccer, I say soccer, I can't say football in Australia. And so you naturally assume that it's, it, that it would be athletics or something else, but it, but it is tennis and, and, and soccer. And, uh, and I think, uh, it's a beautiful sport. It's, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I have a first love for it because it's, uh, my first love in, in, a, in, a, in choosing a sport. I was lucky to participate in many as a kid. And uh, they kept on coming back back to this game. And it continues to evolve, which is great. It's had its moments of being too conservative. And I think it's changed. You're getting other versions of tennis now. You get paddle tennis, which is a great version, got more exercise. You get pop tennis, the same. Um, and uh, uh, and there's others that existed out there that are versions of racquetball. There's you know, table tennis or or totem tennis and beach beach tennis. So it's a, look, I think it's a, it's a great sport. And, um, and those that get into it and play it really enjoy it. All right, you talked about your grandfather. Your yeah. accent's not the same as mine. So where are you from and where did you grow up? Yeah, so I, I grew up in, uh, in – I was born on the east coast of South Africa in, in a town called – just north of Durban. And I uh, you know, so I spent my, my schooling years in South Africa. So part, this apartheid years? Apartheid years. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. My father was a uh, – my father was a sportsman. He was a professional boxer. Oh, really? Um, and uh, – and then he was, he was very outdoors. He, for many, many years, 50 years, he held the deep, deep diving record. And, uh, so he's done all crazy things, jumped off mountains. And then as kids, I think we learned to be risk takers and have some challenges. There were four of us and all did our own thing. He made us choose the sport. And, and uh, I don't, I don't think he liked tennis. That's probably why I chose it at the beginning. I'm not too sure what the reason was, but, uh, 
but yeah, and he and he was uh, and he was an outspoken individual against uh, against the regime at that time. Was so it was you know, and I think uh, many of us were. I left South Africa when I could, and uh, and then went to try to forge my forge a career for myself, firstly in Europe and in the United States. And I played a bit of tennis, and I think I was smart enough. I had a good education. I was fortunate, I was smart enough to realize that uh, that I wasn't good enough to make money playing tennis, but I. I could maybe make money doing something in the sport. Doing something. Well, you're being a little bit humble. How how good were you in South African standards? Uh, no, I Come was, on. If you compare me to no, I'm not comparing you to the globe yet. I'm comparing to South Africa. Me, at if the you time. compare me to the Aussies, I mean, look, I, I mean, I was the Davis Cup captain for South Africa. Well, that's not a bad uh, thing to claim, is it? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, it, yeah. So it was I. I, I coached. Uh, I, we won the national title a couple of times. I was national coach of the year. Got presented the White House by the president of the U.S. So I've had a few lucky gigs um, and uh, worked hard for them and been fortunate they've had good people around me to be able to get to that point. And just like we do today, we're trying to win every day here as well and win more fans, win more, win more people to play the game and, and, uh, and try and, you know, there's sport, and just wanting to sidetrack, but sport attracts a lot of politics and emotional engagement sometimes makes people stupid. So I think, you, you, you know, you've got to constantly challenge in an environment. We're very lucky in tennis. Uh, we've we've got a board. We're very fortunate that we have the board we do because they all corporately highly successful individuals that come together and do what's in best interest of the game. But I think many sports suffer don't suffer not having that 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 opportunity. And uh, and so yeah, so I think you know I, I was I was fortunate in my in my whole journey. I also did I did three years in the army. Yeah, so well, was, come on, let's hear a little bit more about it. All right, so you grew up in South Africa. You, the old man, like you say, is a, prof- a good boxer, outstanding sportsman, and everything else. And he says, and you you take up tennis. Were you pretty so you're a bit of a superstar as a kid? No, I started late. I started when I was like th- late thirteen. I started playing when I was thirteen. I mean, I didn't I didn't start like Elena Djokic. I think started at two or three. I was she had ten years on me by the time I <laughs> okay. Time. So you do you do pretty well? Yeah, I did a, I did a well in juniors. Um, I played on the, the South African circuit at the time, which was the, the then it was called the Sugar Circuit. A lot of Aussies used to come and play that. Okay. And, uh, and I played on that, uh, got a few points. Um, then I went overseas, played in different circuits in Europe primarily. Now, was this before you served in the army, or was this after when you went overseas? No, I did. The, I actually did. What I, I I did the army young, so I started right when I left high school. Um, yeah, okay. So I was able to serve in the army. And then I went, and then during the army, which was great, you know, I got physically fit in the army. Yeah, um, and you got, and, and you and you seem to have received a couple of a particular okay. citation or a particular. Award? I did. Yeah, I did. I, I did uh, during that period. I mean, South Africa was was pretty much at war with Angola, Mozambique, Frelimo, uh, Russian, uh, and it was protecting its borders. So we were right in the middle of that. And I was towards the end of compulsory conscription. I think I just missed it. I needed to be a few years younger. Um, but I did take advantage of it. I took advantage of it to learn leadership. I, I volunteered for leadership positions. I, I became an officer in the army. Um, I educated myself in the army. I I used it to get really physically fit. I challenged myself. I did all the things when you had to put your hand up for something. I always did it. Um, and the sixth, and, ever, and the sixth ever recipient of the South African Army Merit, Merit Award, Award. Yeah, which yes, means which, which means what? Which uh, it's your performance in the army across the board from a leadership point of view. It's taking a group of people to get a good outcome, and uh, and so I uh, I was in charge of a large group of people. I must admit, then when I look back at now, I didn't really know what I was doing then. So, like, but everyone thought I did because I was confident and I, I probably had a loud voice and shouted a lot. So, everyone thought, oh, he knows what he's doing. But, I, but look, when I look back at that, I think from a personal perspective, I, I learned a lot about growing up really quickly 
and I also learned very clearly that I didn't want to do that forever. And I wanted to go and explore the world and, and cause, cause I hadn't traveled much because of w where we were as a family and, and what we'd been doing as kids. And, and so, yeah, so I, I, I want to take full advantage of the opportunity. So you went, okay. So in the other part, I guess, we're just going through your life, high performance starts playing, you know, the mental conditioning you as well. So off you embark on overseas and you go to the US, Europe, but end up being a coach in the US. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. So I went to the US to get, got my degree, uh, at, in the University of Texas. Kinesiology. Um, and yep, I did, I did, I did this, the science of movement. And then, uh, and I got a degree in economics, very different, but I wanted to get a business background as well. Same time I was doing that, you know, uh, with a friend started a business and it was a sporting business, build facilities, offer sporting programs and did this in Texas and then started on my, uh, my master's degree and then got offered a, there was the, where, where we had the business, there was a university that, uh, um, was looking for, a, for their tennis coach. It was one of, in, in the Big Ten, one of the big conferences. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. I knew nothing about college coaching and that and, uh, give it a go because he made a deal with me. He said, he'll pay for my doctorate if I, if I coach the team for a couple of years. So I thought, well, that's a good deal. Yeah. Um, so, um, and it was the athletic director made that offer, the University of Illinois. And then I, I got into the coaching and I said, the coaching is more fun than studying, getting a doctorate. So I parked the doctorate till, later years of my life and then i'll uh, i'll go and start coaching love the coaching and started to have instant success we took a team that was from the midwest you know cold climate then no one expected anything not not much of a facility and we won the national title we we beat all the, the traditional best teams and and it was the first time in in the 125 year history of college tennis uh that uh, which is which is big in the u.s it's a big business the it's a multi-billion dollar business in the u.s mm -hmm. This was the first time that a team other than the, the, the traditional five powerhouses had won. We disrupted. And since then, there's been a lot of disruption. So just on that, controls. just on that, you said you had instant success. What were the learnings from that? Because that's, like you said, you just broken all the rules. Mm. When I say instant success, when I look back, it was instant. But during the time, it, was, was, it took some time. We won our first major thing after four years. And then after nine years, we won the, the big thing. I think it was... It was, it was a number of factors. And I, and I, and I, and I think I instilled this, I had this myself and I instilled this, this in others that there's no secret to success. And if you're looking for that secret, you're going to spend too much energy going down a path that has no end. But there are certain factors that are success. And the first one is just work harder than the guy next to you. And that will take you probably pretty much all the way. And, and if not all the way, you know, you're going to get, you're going to get, you're going to get pretty, you're going to get damn close. The second one was, is that keep evolving, innovating, and changing yourself. See what others are doing. How can you do it better? Be the best learner that you can possibly be. So, that, so the second one is having the empathy to take on advice, to learn, to evolve, to change. If you're egocentrically driven, you become blind to the opportunity. And that can be in business. Uh, that can be, you know, one of the worst people you can have on your team in business is a narcissist because they're absolutely blind to all those opportunities that you have and, and, and all high, some with a very high ego. Yeah. Hey, but there's an interesting contradiction here in that one. And the reason I say that I've interviewed top sports people before you don't get there unless you're selfish. Yeah. So that's the third one. Cause there's a difference between being, being blind to learning and being selfish. The third, the third one, the third one is you've got to have a completely selfish approach to it. But it doesn't mean you're selfish at the expense of absolutely everything around you because you're going to need some people to help you get there. It means you're selfish with your time, you're selfish with your opportunity, you're selfish with 
where you're going. So you have this tunnel vision on to get there and you're not going to have anything stop you from getting there. And that's where you're selfish. You're selfish in a good way. If, if you carry that selfishness through to your life beyond being a high performing athlete, you're going to have a few problems because people are not going to want to help you. But, uh, but yeah, so that would be the third, the third one. And then the, then the, the fourth one, which often people forget is the reflection and feedback one. There's many different kinds of feedback, positive feedback, negative feedback, no feedback, constructive feedback. But if you, if you create an environment where you're open to feedback and you're open to reflect, that's how you improve. So those were basically the four primary ingredients that I'd always instill in if you want to be great at what you do. And then when it came to the technical side of the game from a physical or a biomechanical point of view, as I mentioned at the beginning, we focused on the strengths. And, and at the end of the day, if you just do that every single day, I mean, I, I remember my first day really with, with the team is I told the group it was the snow, that the temperature was freezing where you, you look, you take your lip out, you take your tongue out your mouth, it would freeze on your lip. That's how cold it was. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, and I said to these group of 16 guys, I said, tomorrow morning, we're going to meet at five, five o'clock in the morning outside the armory and we're going to go all go for a run. And, uh, I got there five o'clock in the morning of those 16 guys, like seven showed up and, uh, so that afternoon, I saw the rest of the 16. I said, seven showed up this morning. That was the deal. So I said, tomorrow morning, we'll do the same. Five o'clock, we'll meet. And that next day, eight showed up, one more. So I got them all together that afternoon. And the eight that didn't show up, I told them to leave the university, leave the team. We've got no interest in having them on the team. So now I'm down to eight. And that eight, the next morning, I said, we're going to, at four o'clock, we're going to get together. And uh, four o'clock, not, not five o'clock, four, four o'clock, be an okay. hour earlier. All right. And the message they were getting, gradually, is going to get tougher and get tougher and get tougher. And they're going to make a decision. Am I going to be part of this journey or I'm going to step out? Anyway, we ended up with five. And unfortunately, I made a bit of an overreach because you have to have a team of six to compete in the season. So I had to go and get the wide receiver of the, of the gridiron team to play tennis for us at number six. And he was a pretty good athlete and couldn't play tennis, but we had, we had a body, a warm body. And that's how we started. But we set the tone from the beginning. So when you're coaching a team, the great footy coaches here would set the tone very early on what their expectation is. And, and whether it be a physical one or whether it be a combination of all of it is, uh, I think, same running a business. When you come in as a leader of a business, you set the tone. But if you set the tone by being the first person that speaks, you've got a problem. You'll be set the tone by the first person that listens. You think big? Always. Actually, it's interesting. Just before this podcast, I had a conversation with a potential talent we bring into the business completely outside of the business work globally uh with a with a major uh global entertainment business and i was doing a final interview they're not really interviews for me they're just having a fireside chat to see if we can if we can connect and she asked me she said you know where do you see the future of this of this business i said this is a billion dollar business you know we're halfway there right now as far as our turnover more than halfway but this is a billion dollar business it's got easy, a billion dollar business. It's got, uh, got diversification opportunities in the food business, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the music business, in, in the tech business. You know, we've, um, we've launched a venture capital fund. We make, we've made 12 investments in opportunities that are going to really grow over the next seven to 10 years. Some already have really taken off. I mean, people thought it was crazy the other day. I said, you know, we need to, we need to help kids in China and Korea and India and Japan become great tennis players. Because if we have a winner of the Australian Open from one of those four nations like Australia, we have a winning event and we have the country will just it'll go on fire because you'll have now three, four, five hundred million people watching the superstar of their nation. So why aren't we thinking like that? Or, you know, when we come, when it comes to a premium tour, why aren't we thinking about taking outside of tennis and, and partnering with tech, partnering with esports? And, and so, yeah, so, um, you, you have to, 
if, if you've got a DNA to think big just naturally, and I think my father said, I asked him his definition of think big, and he said, buy a house you can't afford. And uh, I've had lots of people tell me, and unfortunately, I've done that. So I've won sometimes, I've lost sometimes, <laughs> I've bought something I can't afford because I just trusted myself at the end of it, I'll get there somehow. And as a coach, how do you instill that? That's a great question. That's a great question. And, and in your business career, you'd be able to answer that question because you're, you're leading things. And, and uh, I think you first got to live it. You can't just say it. You got to demonstrate it. Uh, great coaches. You often hear that a player would say, oh, it's really hard to listen to a coach unless they've been there in the arena themselves. I don't 100% buy that because there's some great coaches that have had some great outcomes. Well, well, I, never never saw, I never saw Sir Alex Ferguson make it to the top. Yeah, exactly, as an example. So I don't buy that completely. So I think sometimes that's a cop-out, but I also think there's great coaches that are great players. So to instill that, you've got to live it. Uh, you've got to demonstrate it by – you'd be absolutely amazed. Body language is one of the best communicators in the world, and people just completely forget about body language communication. So one, you've got to live it. Two, you – you, you have to talk about it and, uh, and then you have to keep circling back to what you're talking about. You can't go into a new thing every time. Uh, and there's other ways you talk about it. You can tell someone to do it or you can talk about it. So there's got to be some self-motivation that you've got to build in. And, and then the word motivation, motivation is overused too many times. Um, I think you've got to find, you've got to create environments where people can perform at their best and perform optimally. Uh, and I think the third way you do is you, you incentivize it and you've got to incentivize it to all forms of reward and it can be, can be a financial reward. So find out what, what makes you tick. Is it, is it recognition? Well, make sure you get the best possible recognition you can get because that's your incentive pathway to, uh, to perform and to think big. So when those, was it five or six turned up? No, five, wasn't it actually? Turned up at 4 a.m. If you're looking at it from your experience as a coach and as a leader, what are the characteristics that really stand out, maybe in a common manner, for high performers? To use your language, you bet my house on those five. Because you've got to make a call. Yeah, you, well, you have to make a call. And I, and I think that people will have different uh, di uh, different focuses based on what the attributes of the characteristics would be for, for, a, for a high performer. And, but is there and, many and common threads you see? A hundred percent. A hundred percent there's common threads. Um, for me, the common threads are willingness to take a risk. Put it on the, put it on the line. Put it on the line. Put it on the line. And, don't, and put it on the line is everything that you do. I, I, I use this analogy, and that's coming to the second one. But but put it on the line every single time, and and make a decision that does that seems it's the decision of biggest risk, but it does have the biggest reward. But make that decision. So I've got to go and run a race, for example, in the you know in the middle of the heat of of northern Taiwan, and uh, but if I win that race, I can get my time up to a certain thing. But I. I uh, it's going to be tough to get there, and, and and there's lots of reasons why I shouldn't go. It's much more comfortable for me to go to up northern New South Wales and, and do that same race. So take the risk. The second one is, as a term, is don't let them steal your sandwich. And uh, and basically is that is don't you're in an environment right now, and you're in a competitive, and this is this comes to competition and and competitive. Com co competitiveness is practiced. Uh, and what do I mean by don't let them steal your sandwich? I had two brothers. And we were all more or less the same age. And if there was one sandwich on my plate that my brother wanted, is that he would steal it and he would take it the moment I turned my eyes off from the plate. And so, so it became competitive. My, he was not going to steal my sandwich. I kept that going right throughout my life is no one's going to steal my sandwich. And so, and, and that just talks to really being competitive. And you can tell as a coach if someone's really competitive or not, go, you know, go into their home 
understand how they treat, uh, how, they, how they are with their parents and their family. And, and you'll find out competitiveness very quickly. So that for me is a common trait. So the, the risk one's a common trait, the competitiveness one's a common trait. The other common trait, which I think is sorts out the great ones from the legends, and that's the willingness to change. Because, because change is such a big thing in the narrative that I always talk about in leadership, but, but the, the willingness to change, being so open to change, meaning we, I'm highly competitive. I'll take risks and I'm going to lose, we're going to lose the game this weekend because I'm going to have to change. Or I'm going to lose the match because I'm working on changing my forehand. I'm still going to out there compete, but I know I'm going to lose it, but I'm working on changing my forehand. Or I can go back to winning it and not change the forehand. You have to have the willingness to change. It's the only pathway to improvement. You know, if you, if you're not willing to change, there's not a, it is not a legend I've met. Not one. And I've been fortunate. I've been around a lot of great athletes in many, many different sports. Every single one has the traders. They on that journey somewhere made a change and, and, and the better ones, the great ones made many changes. And I, and I, and that often gets forgotten, uh, in the, in the realm of, of, of greatness and, uh, uh, and, and high performance. And then probably the final one is, uh, you don't have all the answers. So go and suck down those that do. I would go and talk to the person who was number one in the world. Go and find out what the, what the, you know, the Rod Lavers did in this world that I want to do. Uh, Ken Rosewell and Rod Laver always talk about the story of, uh, I asked them once, I said, who's the player you feared the most? I thought they would say each other, but they both said Lou Hode. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and, and why? I said, because the guy was so bloody competitive. Uh, there wasn't, I mean, he, he would compete for water out the water jug. He would compete for what ball number he wanted. And this, and it was, it was tiring. It was relentless. And of course he was great, but, uh, but yeah, so I think, I think there's, you know, those are the four things. And then there's others that you can add into it that can be different focuses. There's a, there's a guy, uh, I've always felt, I, I've always learned a lot from Wayne Goldsmith, actually, who, who's, who's just his whole life spent on high performance. He's advised Australian rugby and, and different sports. And, and he really writes and pinpoints, you know, some of the great characteristics of high performance because he spent his whole life around high performance. But, but the other, the other thing I'd say, Greg, is, you know, high performance is sport is no different to high performance in business. That's what I was going to ask you that. So you still, so you apply the same, 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 same approach? principles, same principles, same approach, same principles. The difference is in high performance in sport, when it's you performing versus in business, you've got to get others to perform like it's you. Yeah. And that bridge is, is that is a, a, another dimension of leadership that people, and, and I think you only get that through learning, uh, through personal experiences and through time. Because that bridge is is the hot in leadership the hardest one to crack. I can run, I can go out myself and try and get a try and get the best time on an eight hundred, uh, and I've got to do all the things to get there. And it's, I'm the sole one that's accountable for that outcome. But if I've got to take a business and go and deliver a dividend to my shareholders, that's almost impossible to get. I've got to get everyone to perform on the expectation. I think, and that's the challenge. And that's where leaders come unstuck because they look at it too short term. What years were you coaching? Let's see, I'm 25 years old. No, I'm just kidding. Not that, <laughs> Not that long ago then, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, the, um, the years I started, I started coaching college in 1994. Okay. Uh, and I took 2005. All right. Coach, but, but I did coaching before that. And then I, I was Davis Cup captain from 99. No, no, sorry. The first year I think it was 98 Davis Cup captain. So 2002, 2003. And then, uh, and so I worked with a lot of the top South African players, Wayne Ferreira, a lot of those guys I worked during that period. And, and I coached some of them before and then became the Davis Cup team. And we had, we had great teams, but we were also, uh, 
and this is an interesting story. We were in Birmingham playing the playing playing him and Rosetsky, you know, the, the English Davis Cup team, and and um, we played Great Britain, and they and they were uh, I think number five and six in the world at the time, something like that. And we weren't there, but we were also struggling with our federation. Our federation was spending all the money on themselves and not on the athletes. So uh, so of course I took a stand as I do, as I would, yep. as called a rebel or, or, or an activist, and uh, took a stand on, and uh, called out the Federation publicly. Uh, it was a great opportunity. Global media was there. You, you don't miss a trick with British press. I took advantage of the opportunity and, and uh, learned some lessons in that journey. I was probably a bit young in that one. But, uh, but the, you know, the, the lessons, the, the one thing I learned is, is if something's wrong, say it. So, so I, I'll still do that. You know, if you worry too much about where you say it or what you say, then I think you're going to be overthinking it too much. And we've worked in a world now where that does become more challenging. You need to be more, you held more accountable to that, but that's fine. You just manage that. But I also learned then that it would probably be in a better to have the conversation with them first than, than, than have it as publicly as I did, but it did change. So I did learn that. <laughs> One of the reasons I asked the question, if you think about those days when you're coaching compared to the 800 you were talking about on the tour at the moment, how many of the 800? now have mind coaches, psychological coaches, compared to your day? Look, my day wasn't that long ago, Greg, was like, but it was long enough ago where it wasn't as prevalent. In my day, there was, there was a guy named Dr. Jim Lure who's kind of like the guru on, on taking the cognitive process or the mind process to the physical one, connecting the two. And like he taught tennis players to like simple things, take longer time between points, practice your breathing, all the things that helped you mentally. But today it's so sophisticated. We will accredit a minimum of five people per player. Okay, right. We'll accredit 12,000 people coming in that are focusing on these athletes performing at the best. And that player will have a physical coach. They'll have a technical coach or their primary coach. They'll have a mental coach. They'll have a massage therapist or someone that helps prepare their body. And maybe the physical coach is also the strength coach of an agent. And then, then of course, they may have a partner and kids and parents and friends, and and so the list goes on. But that's generally the five that work with one individual player. And I and I always say it's a it's a high pressure environment for that player because when they look up at the stands and they see, okay, I'm paying for mom and dad and my brother, my sister, my physical coach, my coach, my mental coach. I've got ten people up there. I better win this match. If I don't win this match, I'm spending more money than I'm making. So there's a lot of pressure in an individual sport like tennis. And I am in the view also just on, on the side of there's not enough players in tennis that make enough money. So I've always said that. Right, so does the top few get the large percentage? I, I think a top few get the large percentage. I think it's got to spread more, but I think the top few deserve that. Yep. They can be paid more, but there's a lot more. We need we need uh, the 150 to – we need – you know, at least the top 150 players making a great living. So when they finish playing, they don't have to go and find a job because that this has been their career. So, so I'm outspoken on making, making, getting an environment where more players get paid more money. You're talking, and you are really talking entertainment mentality in that case, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the, I think there's more money out there. I, th I think the sport can do a better job coming together to generate more money. We all, we will realize that. And there's some good people in the, in the sport that can make that happen. And, and I think that there's you know, more money that's going to be distributed to the players and, and, uh, it, it's the right thing for the sport. And, uh, I've seen and been around players and, and even myself where, you know, you don't, it, it, if you don't make a living, it costs you more. And, and so, so that has to change. 
So you've been honoured with what, the US National Coach of the Year twice? Yeah. Yep. What made you come to Australia then? Why are you sitting in the US? Hey, who, who, who wouldn't want to come to Australia? Come on. 2000, 2005. Actually, it's an interesting story. I, I, I was uh, running the business, coaching, um, enjoying a lot of success. Uh, I always remind people, that, I always tell people that I was very privileged. I, um, I was in a town, Champaign, Illinois, mostly, mostly students, the University of Illinois, one of the biggest educational institutions in the US, 45,000 students. Yeah, wow. About 10,000 staff, so massive. And we won the national title, first time ever in that, in that town in 100 years. I could go anywhere and get a free meal. I could uh, I'd get my car fixed. People didn't want to, people just wanted to be very generous and kind because they were appreciative of what had been achieved. So it was a comfortable existence and I loved it. And I, and I loved that town, loved that university, but I wanted more challenges. And so um, an opportunity came up in Australia to. Uh, is this is the contact. old mental thinking again, time for a change, yeah. is it? I've got to change time, myself. Time for change, time for change, time for a new challenge. I want to take a big risk. Apparently, when I was a kid, I told my parents that. In my my working life, I wanted to live on five different continents, so, so I keep changing things. I'm on three, so I don't know if I'm going to make another two. But but I, but I, but that was obviously something that maybe resonated a little bit. And and I wanted to. I always loved. I mean, Melbourne was my favorite city. So I used to come here, you know, coaching and as well. And and uh, and also I loved um, I loved Australia. And, and I yeah. So so I was recruited to become here as, as the director of performance. In other words, sort out the. The performance side of the business and performance is my natural uh, DNA and I come from a performance environment I love performance and and I think coaching actually I would if I'm people ask me I was, I was in a CEO forum recently and one of the CEOs what's the one thing you would do that you prepare to be a CEO I said be a coach and I said even if it's coaching a local basketball team or coaching your kids uh, footy team but don't don't go and do it as like a like a like a semi-volunteer just once a week go and do it seriously and commit to it and you'll learn more there than you will in any course on how to manage people. But that's a side note. Um, so I think I, I think so. Yeah, I was offered the gig to come here and do that. And I thought, geez, Australia performance, their history in tennis—it's like the best in the world. I'm going into a gig that surely can't be too hard. But I didn't realize as much as when I came, and it needed an overhaul. And uh, and I was privileged to be put in a position where I had that opportunity to have an overhaul. I was also lucky I had an accent, so I always had an excuse. You know, I, w- I always said that um, I said you've got to be careful with tennis coaches because if you have a tan, a hopper of balls, and you've and an accent from out of town, you're an expert. So, uh, um, so be careful about the watch out for the experts. Well, I guess and, uh, so. I guess for that, you had the opportunity to do your warm up before you became CEO. Yeah, I think I did. I was, I was, and and the, this I've had three different jobs in this, in this company, and and then a couple of years after that, I was asked to do the tournament. And I think they were thinking on an interim basis. And then we had an unbelievable year, and they said, "Well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe do it full time." Then I became the CEO, twenty fourteen's first Australian Open, and uh, then I was in a position to be able to make you know transformative decisions. And and I was I was fortunate that the CEO hired me. Steve Wood was a really good guy, and uh, and was open to change and and drove early change. So that helped on the, lay the pathway and the journey, and uh, did a really good job. And so. Um, and then, and then over those years, and even now, even now more so than even before, we've got a board that you know, gives you some latitude to do this, and and, and it's un- it's unique. It's in sport. Let me tell you, when I cause when I look at some of the other challenges other sports have, I I, I am lucky because it's unique. It, it's it's a unique environment when you have such a supportive board. I mean, if you think COVID, what happened during COVID? I'm going to come to the second. Hang five. I'm going to come. All right, hold up. Let's go back. 2014. You're anointed. You're CEO. 
Yeah. All right. You've given me the big rundown about your high performance and how you engage, et cetera, and still all the confidence. What did you actually inherit? And where did you envisage it being? Well, I, I inherited a tennis event. So the first thing I said with the team, there's no boundaries. And let's go and find, let's go and find a team, let's put together a team globally that uh, is the best of what they do and come in and give them, give them the free reign to create. Okay, and, so and it sounds easy. How did you? How do you do that? And why do I want to? And also, what's as to you know, great theory. You got to go around the world. I'm going to come and join you. Hey, mate, you've no, only no, had the job for yeah. five minutes, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, you're right. You're right. You need help doing that. One one of the things I think I can sell. I think I I I don't I I think I I can persuade, not sell. I think I can persuade. Um, and I did sell the dream. I did sell the dream. So what was the dream? People. The dream was that. That the Australian Open is is a good event. We're going to make this. We're going to make this the best sport and entertainment event globally. And remember, entertainment with sport didn't exist then. And we're going to make this the best sport and entertainment event globally. Uh, it's going to be the biggest. It's going to be the best. And we're going to get to a billion dollars in revenue. And uh, we're going to take a lot of that money. We're going to start to invest in other opportunities and diversify the growth. You know, it's really funny. I had a commercial director just showed up here and he heard me say a billion dollars and he started running again. <laughs> No, we got we got a great team. Uh, we got, and that we're fortunate because we've got people in our team now with the capability that are able to push to that for that future aspiration. But I, but I, but so yeah, you so went worldwide the, on your search. Worldwide, yeah, hundred percent. You've got to get the best talent you can globally. I, I went and got a guy. Actually, uh, one of the first guys we got was um, was no, never, never watched tennis, seen tennis, and played tennis. But he he had been in football and rugby and sport, but. He had been a rebel in them. He had been a transforming rebel, and he'd got into trouble with always constantly changing things. I don't like that. Anyway, there's a lot of things. One of the first things we did is we went back to Channel 7, and we bought the production rights back, and we formed a production company. Well, that's and, that's uh, turning it on its head. It was totally turning on its head. Back then, it was unheard of. This is So we've had nearly for 10, so talk 10 us, years. So talk us through that. So here you are. You're going to start your own production company. Yeah. So, so at that point, 7, which were good partners of ours, were – were producing it. And the issue you have when, when you've got your domestic broadcast rights part of producing it, they, they're giving you a very generic content to go out globally. And I wanted to customize that content to go out globally, to get them to, under the skin in every single market, every dialect, every every section. And uh, But you couldn't do that because they didn't. there was no incentive. It didn't matter who it was. It could be any. It was no incentive to, to customize it. So, so we paid a fee back to Seven at the time. Uh, and they were very open to it, which was great. And we paid a feedback, got the production right, because we wanted to form our own production company, primarily because we wanted to invest ourselves in in really customizing the content for each market. So if we want to put something in southern Japan, I wanted you know a Japanese commentator, I wanted Japanese players on the court at a time that the Japanese will watch it. Then I'll go to their the, the, the distribution host and say, oh, by the way, you need to pay an extra 20 million bucks for that. Uh, so you, you're not going to make money unless you can provide a product that people really want to buy. So so that was really transformative for us early. And so you've got to get people that come in and know how to do that. So we did that very quickly. We were also at the time, we had agencies selling all of our rights, our broadcast rights, our sponsorship rights, some of them exclusively. And I, I picked the phone up, I called them while I said, thank you for doing that, but you're no longer doing any more. We're doing it now. Oh. Um, and if, you, if you've got a great deal, you can bring it to us and we'll negotiate a commission. And of course, that caused a lot of issues. You're, you're a tough nut to deal with. It was tough. It was a tough nut to deal with, but but it, we, my job was to do what's in the best interest of this organisation yep. and, and so and the sport and and that 
that immediately generated probably another 50, 60 million. Now, was this being done anywhere else in the world or was this new to the game itself? No, this was definitely new to the game. The production was new to the game um, and uh, and the rights. And there's still other – most tennis entities have others. They have agencies that's, that sell their rights end-to-end exclusively. We still don't. But there's we do use the agencies, but we use them – you know, uh, in a, in a, in a, in a targeted way, mm-hmm. uh, and we're not exclusive. Uh, if there's an agency that's really helpful, then we, we, we want to partner with them. So we, we do it more around partnerships than we do around, you know, uh, commercial contracts or commercial outcomes. Um, and then, so that was the second thing we did. Um, and then the third thing we did is we said, okay, one of our pillars is tennis. Let's create three more. So we created food. And so we now we said, we're no longer going to ourselves provide the food. We're going to get the best chefs in the world to provide the food. And we created music. We, we made a deal at that time with, with Michael Kodinsky. He was great. Um, and, uh, and, uh, we started putting some of Australia's best up and coming bands on. So we had 80 bands in our second year, I think, on site. So it became a music festival. And then, and then two years after that, we added technology and the technology, esports. We put any on uh, you know, esports. Uh, la- launching an incubator in partnership, um, in partnership with the Victorian government, uh, setting up a venture capital fund has been going for several years. Um, and, uh, and then, and then starting with some of using technology, uh, as a tool to provide better entertainment or experiences, you know, like walkout technology and, you know, you know um, ticketless entry, that type of stuff. So you, so you completely changed the product to tennis then? Yeah. The, the product was just tennis and That's now right. tennis is just, an element of the entertainment in the experience. So it would be like if I was in the FMCG business and I was launching to distribute a, you know, a cereal is in an orange box. I've now changed that cereal to, to nuts in a green box. So if I'm looking at the nuts in the green box, maybe can you give me a bit of a rundown? And I'm not sure what you're allowed to say here, but of the percentages of revenues, where does it come from? So at that time, most of the revenue came from tickets. Today, most of the revenue comes from global broadcast, got our own production unit. So that's turn and, and significant. And broadcast itself is more than 50% now, both global and domestic. So right. And it used to be, used to be around 25, 23, 25. So it's more than double. Sponsorship has grown, uh, as a big portfolio. Uh, we struggle in Australia getting Australian sponsors because the, the, the cost of the sponsorship is pretty high because it's a global brand. And, and so we, we, we globally priced, but we still, we still love having Australian partners in, in the categories that we can. And then the rest is then in, in ticketing and retail. And then there's ancillary income that comes from other forms of, of offerings, but then that's very small, but, uh, our, our revenue will be diversified. And we have bought some assets. We own other events. We're an owner of the labor cup, for example. Uh, we run another, you know, 300 events around, around the, around Australia. Uh, so a lot of them smaller events. Uh, we're starting to do run events for other people, other other franchises, and that'll start to become a business. So as we have production co, uh, we'll also have events co, which has been built now as uh, as a, as an opportunity. So where does your role, or where does the influence of your role begin and end in Australia? The role as it relates to the CEO role for the CEO. Yep. Oh, I I think I, I, the way I look at it is a, a number of things. I have a, I, I look at myself as having accountability to make this event by far and away, not only the best event in Australia, but the best one in the world. I look at having accountability to particularly the Victorian people, but the Australian people to provide them with something they can be really proud of, to give them the pathway they've been really proud of. And they, you know, I, I hear from a lot of people that they say that, 
where you're from. I'm from Australia. Oh, I've been to the Australian Open. Yeah. We hear that a lot. Yeah. And so, so that, that, that's, that's really great for our team. I look at an accountability to grow, uh, this into, you know, in, and, and, and ultimately into a multi, multi million dollar franchise or multi million dollar, you know, it's not a franchise, multi million dollar, um, asset. And, uh, and, and so that we can continue to invest back in the sport because the biggest thing about this event, it, it, it incentivizes people to play the game. We've seen all the numbers after the summer of tennis is there's more people playing tennis than anything else. The club coaches, there's four, five, 4,500 coaches in Australia making a living coaching the game. They all getting a greater living by the help that the Australian Open and the summer of tennis does the United Cup, the other great event that our team are now running, uh, and the other events in the other, in the other cities. So. Brisbane International, Hobart International, uh, the United Cup in Sydney and Perth, and then the Adelaide International. So these are all great events and great cities that our team run. We own them end to end, so making those better. But uh, I'm looking at a, at, a, at, a, at a responsibility beyond just running an event okay. and running a business, a responsibility about having an impact on people's lives. All right, let's hit leadership pretty hard when you're really challenged. Yeah. Toughest times, COVID? Oh, from a personal point of view, I have never experienced that. I don't think I ever will. When I reflect, and I did a lot since that, is that what could you have done differently, better? I don't think many people would have survived that. Either a board's got to have a scapegoat to kick you out, or a government's got to force a re- resignation, or a, or you just got to step down because the heat's too much in the kitchen, or you can't take it, whatever reason. And uh, when I look back, it was two years. It wasn't just one moment. The first year was locking up. 1,300 people that we brought from all around the world into quarantine for 15 days. And we made a commitment with the premier and the government of the day of the day is that we would not be the cause of one outbreak of COVID. And that's when it was at its height at the beginning of 21. And then in the second year, when we thought we threw the woods, the, we, on the eve of Omicron, the Australian Open starts. And then we had the whole vaccination debate and then Novak Djokovic coming in and going out and, and the things over those two years that tennis, tennis Australia and me personally were blamed for, I was blamed for being an anti-vaxxer. I was blamed for trying to go behind, behind people's back to get someone in. I was blamed for ignoring the, the quarantine. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. But the people that blamed me for that were people I didn't know. So I didn't, I didn't take notice. I only took notice of the people that our family, our friends, our team, and, and that's our board and the business and the people that I trust and, 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 and listen to. Those are the people in my life that would matter. So you're losing friends during this time, you think? Or you soon work out who your friends are? <laughs> you work out who your friends are. I'm forever grateful for people that actually stood by your side. And, and I took I, – I, I brought the team together, and I remember when I brought the team together, I think half of the room were in tears because I said, here's the deal. I said, I am going to be the, I will be the front person. I will take absolute and complete responsibility for this, and uh, I will make sure I protect the organization, protect the sport. And if it means that I've got to be kicked out to let it go on, I'm quite willing for that to happen. But I'm not going to do it myself. I'm not, I'm not leaving myself because I'm, I'm going to provide the buffer to your, to this team, uh, to everyone else in the community. And I'm willing to take that on. And, uh, and I had death threats, you know, significant death threats, kids that in school being teased. I had, uh, media parked outside your home for 14 straight days, uh, not leaving, you know, sitting in the car, sitting in the trucks. 
they didn't know that wasn't at home, but still they were parked there. And, and I had a constant walk down a few streets, berated a few times and, and constant. And I understood it. I didn't, it didn't, I understood it because, you know, you had a, a um, in 2022, particularly 21 was different, but 2022, there was this, we'd been locked down for a long time and there was a lot of emotion and, and to, and we protected ourselves by being vaccinated. And, and if someone came in that was not vaccinated, we, you know, everyone felt that was wrong. So, and it was the good lesson for me was, and I think, or being able to pass on to people is that you 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 don't really know how you're going to respond when you're really under pressure and you're under the heat and um, and you respond different ways. I'm very active and get and get can get wound up on little things pretty quickly. And I'm, one of my things I always remind myself: don't sweat the small stuff. Sometimes I sweat it too much. I like a room to be really tidy. You know, I'm meticulous about that, but it's small stuff. I shouldn't worry so much about that. But I struggle with that. So, but I was the calmest I've ever been during that period. And I don't know, I can't explain it. I, I didn't, I slept well. I slept better then than I see the normal Australian Opens. Are you that calm? Are you actually watching yourself perform or, you know, sometimes you can do that when, you, when you're in that sort of state? Yeah, I think, I think maybe because I was taking responsibility for the pain other people were going through. I, and I, I felt I care greatly about, I love humans. I care greatly about people. And uh, so maybe it was that. Uh, maybe it was having that, that you know, ultra- other person looking at it. Um, I didn't want to ever show panic. I didn't ever want to show pain. I didn't ever want to show emotion. I wanted to always play straight back because again, I, I agreed to be the buffer, you know, and I, and I, and I wasn't looking for sympathy. And that's a big thing. I wasn't out there seeking for sympathy and I wasn't out there seeking support. I was out there just doing the best job I possibly can. And I was just absolutely zeroed in on doing the best job. And, uh, and I was saying exactly what I knew and I knew very comfortably I was hiding nothing. You're also being made lamb to the slaughter at some stage as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and that never crossed my mind. It crossed my mind more afterwards. And actually, there was a lot of tail to this, a lot of pressure on the tail to this because we there was a lot of personal pressure, family pressure. Because you know people people do nasty things and say nasty things. And and but I, I always say it's, it's, that's always a that's always a, a, a you know a, a group of one. You know, don't like the, the majority are gonna are gonna be with you now. And I, and, and and I also had a responsibility, and I felt that, I, and I did. I was willing to put it on myself. Is that the Australian Open is what's important here, and the sport is what's important here. It's not me. It's not. It's not. It's not people working in the organisation. And I think that was helpful. And I do love the sport, so that was helpful that I was protecting that as well. And also, again, it's really important. That's why any CEO or anyone that listens to it is spend time making sure you have a good board. And you know they were they were remarkable during that period and in, in behind the scenes they didn't come out publicly and say anything and I'm I'm pleased they didn't because they didn't need to add another person to the narrative. It was behind closed doors that we were dealing with the issues and uh, the discipline that they had when they were under that pressure for three weeks was pretty remarkable and I think that can be you know it's a good case study in my view on how boards should react. Where does Craig go to then when it's all coming at him? Okay, he says he's remaining calm. He's under extreme pressure. He's under the spotlight. He's getting mixed messages or messages changing daily from ministers, I'm sure. Who do you seek counsel with? Was it the, the wife? Was it an old lost friend? It was like, who do you actually seek counsel? Sit down and say, there's a lot on here. What do you reckon? A number of people, keep in mind, I was in a hotel room by myself because I was being quarantined. Okay. Staying away from the, from the furore, from the, you know, you know, when you run out the hotel room and you have two, cameras and people chasing you down the street <laughs> i didn't ever want a picture of me running away so i made sure i wasn't in a position where i did run away okay so, all right 
Um, but, uh, but it's just interesting. There were some really good people in the media. There were some really not so good people. The people that I was closest to in the work environment, our executive team were, were there, were there for you. And, and, uh, and there's, there's a few, particularly on the executive team that I really saw counsel for that, that are really smart on it. You know, the, the board too. There's a couple of people on the board you talk to regularly that, uh, that really great support. But you know, the biggest group, which people forget, and this is one of my biggest lessons and a lesson in life is that I've spent my life building equity in my, in the equity jar. And I try and put as much equity in the equity jar. So how I treat people, how you respond, how you follow up, you know, how you talk to people, what you give them, how charitable you are, all these things, how present you are. And, uh, and you keep building the equity. And when COVID hit, I was fortunate I had a full equity jar. And, uh, and that was with the players. As I say, the players, the players gave you the equity, did they? Because as you said at the beginning of this, this discussion, you got them locked up in a room and high performers don't like being locked up in a room. So you still had full equity. That was in 2021. We had to lock them up in the room. So I lost a bit of equity there because they didn't want to be locked up in a room. So I had to quickly spend some time filling it, thinking COVID's over. Remember, I was the guy that called the whole company together in March of 2020 and said, this COVID thing is, I'm not too sure what it is, but we'll be back in the office in four weeks' time. So I'm optimistic. I was a bit, a bit naively optimistic then because it was like two years later. But, yeah. but in, in 2020, when you go through the Djokovic thing, I needed the players because there was, there was more than 60 interviews a day. There was, there was 1,500 global media that's accredited to come to the Australian Open. So every single day for 14 days, you have the global media right here, got the Djokovic story. They are making massive amount of money on that because of all the hits they're getting. Nice. I mean, the, Her- the Herald Sun was smashing. Yeah, absolutely. And they were getting some, they were doing well. And that's okay. That's their job. We don't want the story to end. Exactly. And so they needed to keep on going. And, and, um, and it was those. And two who's weeks. the fall guy we can tackle? That's Harry. Oh, he's, he's, he's around here somewhere. And I always, I, I remind CEOs, I, I, actually, a politician told me, a very smart one said, don't, uh, he said, never, never complain, never explain, and never quit. And, uh, and, and I kind of went on that a little bit. Because I'm not, I don't know if that's always completely the thing, but, but I, I have the views that when someone becomes a target and they've got to be ahead, and then the head goes, you still have the same problems. And probably the best, the head, the, the head that walks out is probably the best one to fix it because they've had the experience of going through the pain. So I think, I think we overwrote my view. And I think it's, I think it's, and, and we do it a lot in Australia. We do it in a lot of, of Commonwealth based countries. I think from my experience, I've lived in South Africa, lived in the UK, lived here, is that, uh, things go badly. We look for the head yep. uh, and we think we get rid of the head. It's going to fix it. But if that head's given a second chance, sometimes a third chance, look at footy coaches. They're given a second chance, third chance. They do really well. So we should look at corporate, unless they've done something drastically wrong and something with lax integrity and, and they're the wrong leader, then different story. But um, uh, there's been recent some big things that have happened and, and CEOs have resigned and I've wanted to call them and say, don't. Did you really? Yeah. And I felt that way. And, I, and it is one recently that I regret doing it for because I, I just, I say don't because have the conversation because the second chance that you are given will be much better than the first chance, in my opinion, than anyone else new coming in. Now, that's just an opinion. No, it's a fair opinion of being in the heat of the battle. Now, when you're in the heat of the battle, and as you say, you're locked in your room, you're being targeted, and they're after your head, to use your words, self-doubt creep in at all, i.e., I'm not going to make it through? I was expecting that, honestly, to creep in. I was expecting myself to have self-doubt and, and, to, and to be really high-strung and anxious and, and, and not sleep and 
have a high heart rate. I was expecting all that, and it didn't occur. I mean, I, I woke up every morning and say, okay, when's that going to come? So you didn't – waiting for the bullet? It, it, yeah. No, no, not waiting for the bullet. I didn't care about the bullet. Didn't care about the and bullet? Maybe that's why. My, my personal response – no, I, I, when I said I didn't care about the bullet, I cared about the opportunity to to be in the environment to try and, to try and get a good outcome for the event and for the sport. So I did care about that. But if it meant that I had to have, have whatever it is called, um, get rid of you – is if it meant if that was the outcome, that was the outcome. I, what I didn't, I, I didn't expect myself. I expected myself to be more highly strung, and I, and I, I, I was calm during that period, and I, and it's a really hard thing to explain because I'm not 100 percent sure why. And it was, a, it was an intense period. I was hearing from. I mean, I tried to look at the positives. The one positive I was hearing from people I hadn't heard from in 30 years, because they'd been reading about on the front page of their newspaper in, in Ethiopia or in, in, you know, in. In Kenya, where I've got some friends, wherever it is, and and then I had people check in to see, oh, how are you doing? And that I appreciated. There were some really good people that were just randomly checking, and that's a lesson for me. And I and I do that more now in these last few years than I did before. So I did a bit before, but not enough. When I see someone, even a random person going through a hard time, I reach out. Craig, but is it true that during these difficult times, the family went offshore? Yeah. So we did. That year was. Um, it comes to my theory, my, my theme of change. Um, we, we, everyone been through a really tough time. And so, so we took advantage of the opportunity for the family then at that point to, uh, go offshore and spend a semester, you know, go to school in another country and, 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 and being out of the environment for a while. I think it was a great decision. It was a great decision for a number of reasons. You, you expose your family to different, you know, different people and different cultures and, and that, um, although it was, it was America, um, but, uh, you know, there was there was a lot of heat in that in that environment at that time, and I think sometimes you underestimate the impact it has. So, so I think that there was a learning that we realised at the time was it's it's probably good to force a bit of change, so you can you can be refreshed. And it was it was a great decision. And then, and then a good learning for me afterwards again is that don't underestimate that the break and stepping out of the environment people need because they need it more than you think. So, your thoughts on leadership post this experience compared to pre this experience what's the big what's the big lesson my the big my big lesson is that everyone's going to go through a hard time at some point is a random act of kindness you can do is reach out and uh, and even if even if you don't know them i reached out to someone two weeks ago i didn't know and you should see the response i got back and this person under massive amount of global pressure in his job and sometimes unfairly so some mistakes be made um, I've reached out to a couple of athletes. Um, so that's, that's the number one big lesson. And I think the second lesson I learned is that, um, is don't take your equity job for granted. Keep working on it. So I've gone back to contacting random people every single day just to make a connection with. Now, they're random people. When I say random, they could be family, friends. A lot of them are family, friends, people I've connected with, business associates that I haven't spoken to in five years or 10 years. I've just made a connection. I sent two notes this morning to one of them. Steve Young, so how are you doing? We haven't spoken in five years. What's up to? What what, what are you up to? How are the family back connected? So so that so keep building the equity jar, keep making the connections because you never know what's what's around the corner. But also because it's fun to do that, and you're only on this earth once, and you'd be amazed. I saw Steve Jobs' this thing on Instagram the other day on his death on his deathbed, and it was another good reminder. You know, another good reminder that you don't have anything left at the end of the at the end of life other than your your experiences. Hey, can I ask? I'm um, a hypothetical. Is, is your role? Is there any way in the world possibly that the Australian Open can be moved from Melbourne? 
there's always going to be an attempt to get this round open. However, and this is always this was incorrectly reported. This, the threat is not taking this round open, putting it somewhere else, because there was you know ten years ago Sydney was was going for this. Yeah, I thought it might have been. Yeah, but someone else creating an event as big or bigger at the same time in another city. That's the threat, and that threat always exists. So we always have to be relevant, and that's why in this precinct we've got to keep evolving, keep innovating, keep developing, keep investing, and um, you know that I think is the most important uh, when it comes to protecting the Australian Open is knowing that uh, that something else can exist somewhere else in the world, and uh, you've got to be consciously vigilant for that. What's the best part of the tradition of the game or of the Australian Open do you love most? The best part of the tradition of the game is it seems to just attract good people. You know, you get your occasional brats because you, you you focus on the brats and all the public focuses on the brats. They saw papers. And uh, you get, you get, yeah, they still pay for it. But it, it does. It does attract good people. And the values of the game, the socialization, the connection aspect is pretty cool about about this game. And and you're not going to get beaten up. You know, physically you'll be okay. And um, so, you know, there's a lot of beautiful attributes to, to the game of tennis. From the Australian Open's perspective, I want to see this event become an event that people couldn't believe it ever could become. Would it ever go back to grass? If you look at the hallowed ground, the tradition of Wimbledon and what it is compared to what we've got, compared to the US Open, compared to clay. I think the uniqueness the uniqueness of, of Wimbledon, um, the uniqueness of Roland Garros, the French Open, we're, we're us in the US Open are different hardcore surfaces. We're a cushioned acrylic, so we're more cushioned hardcore. And, uh, but we have different, they're in New York. You know, when we talk about Melbourne, if you think about it, Melbourne draws from 5 million people within about an hour of the city of Melbourne. Yep. London, Paris, New York is 25 million. Yes. So they have five times the opportunity to draw. draw. So we do a pretty good job punching above our weight. And, and the partnership we have with those three great events, other three great Grand Slams, the uniqueness, the points of difference we have, I think are really important for, for each of us. What's next for you, Craig? You've been in the role. Ah, you're coming up you to ten. You're, you're coming up to you ten years. Come on. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 you obviously you, still got high levels of energy. You've learned a lot. But what's next? Yeah. Look, I, I'll answer the question in two parts. First part is that I've always in my life looked towards not next. Not just because I've had ten years behind me, but I've, the, the first day I got this gig, I always looked for what's next. So I've always done that, and I always will do that. And that's because that's that, that excites me about the energy of living and and. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I've got a great family, got a great home, live in a great city, got great friends, and I'm very, very lucky because of that. And so I won't take that for granted. And sometimes I think I do. But so what's next is that as long as you maintain the energy, and I can, and I can, and I from Leeds Point who can continue to challenge the team and myself and do different things and diversify and have a scope of the role that's different, globalize more. We got more globalization to do. Then you can keep doing it forever or as long as people want you there. But in the future, um, I would like to continue to, to play a role in having an impact. And, uh, and, the, and, and, you know, that's now that sounds very kind of narky in general, but uh, having an impact on people's lives is one of the, is, is now starts to narrow it down. Uh, having an impact on the future of people's lives. So I have a great deal of interest in, in using sport and exercise as a vehicle to having a positive impact. I'm a big believer in young kids particularly doing that and, and adults even getting into that because there's plenty of evidence. In fact, tennis is the one sport that guarantees you a longer life. Um, and there's the, the researchers out there. I use a lot now. It was done at Harvard and, and, um, it was a longitudinal study and, uh, it adds minimum of five years to your life. So everyone go out and have a game. 
you live five years longer. And believe me, when you hit 90, you'll want another five years. So, so I enjoy having an impact. And I, I've still got a lot to do here. And when I feel like I've, I've, I've want to give someone else a go or done enough, or there's someone else can come in and do a better job. Um, I hope at that point I'll have the opportunity to decide that I've had enough. All right. Coming down to the final set, what sort of numbers you're anticipating uh, for 2024? Uh, in terms of patronage and in terms of revenues? Ours is a business momentum. The next year has to be better than the previous, and uh, and we'll always look at it that way. If we have, we had 902 fans through the gate, 902,000 fans through the gate last year, 2023, uh, so over 900,000. So 2024, it's dependent on good weather. So my goal or my aspiration is to get to surpass that as, at a minimum. But we will need good weather. Last year, we had some good weather. We'll need good weather to do that. You can have two well, days of rain. You might have to move it to Sydney. Oh, you know, Sydney has its doses of bad weather too. <laughs> I know it does. Yeah. <laughs> no. and, then, and, then as, and then as far as revenue, um, we uh, it's amazing what's going on, Greg, right now as we sit here today on the on whatever, 6th, 5th of December. We have 90% sold in our premium experiences. We've sold 40% more tickets this, this, today than we had the same time last year. It's an incredible number there. Um, we've got a greater demand for days we've never had greater demands for. We started with a day early. We're starting on the, on the, on the Sunday, first time in the history of the Australian Open. Now we have three weekends that our fans can get to enjoy it. We've got more broadcasting partners than we've ever had. So our reach from a global perspective will easily be over a billion fans. You know, the city of Melbourne, we, we, we plastered the city of Melbourne all over the court. The city of Melbourne is going to get over, over 1.3, 1.4 billion dollars of advertising biased exposure in those two weeks and this is stuff that money really can't buy so so the numbers are all training you know to to an absolutely record-breaking event but with the big but you need good weather you need good outcome of the matches and you, you need people to enjoy your entertainment okay outside of the players playing the game and fulfilling their role and as you say providing the entertainment is there opportunities for the players to stick around and do more Part of a customer experience yeah absolutely absolutely and i think this is part of the build of a premium tour a lot of the players do a really good job and that's your equity job you know i think i go to ruff and adele and say ruff do me a favor we come over and chat to these kids and he say, sure you know roger the same serena uh all our australian australian players are great we can get them to do stuff and and it's always i've always said this and a lot of players don't realize in fact too many players don't realize this that if you take care of and focus on the fan and make the fan your friend, you're going to make a lot more money. And uh, there's some smart people out there that have done it. Yeah, so I think I think if an athlete, and that's what we encourage the Australian athletes to do, be smart, treat your fans well, be available for your fans, engage your fans, have more of them, and you make more money. And from volunteer side, there's an opportunity there you can do more, and I know executives, people volunteering, driving around, certain individual i i think he's starting a bit of that but can you share some for the listeners out there if they wanted to participate yeah we, we are open um we've got a we've got a lot of volunteers have come back this year more than 80 percent. okay year on year we've had some volunteers been here for 45 50 years year on year That's fantastic. we've got a we've got someone that was a ball kid went into tournament operations went into the tournament control and is now a driver uh we've got quite a few of those we gave an award uh, last week to Linda Gordon. She's been over 30 years the locker room attendant. We had beautiful Jack from Impact 21. Uh, we have some, both some physically and mentally challenged kids that participate as workers and, 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 and as staff in the organization. So um, interestingly, we don't have any volunteers. We pay everyone that works for us. 
So we've got over 300 drivers. They would volunteer. That that none of them care about being paid. That's a, a nominal fee, and they wouldn't care about it because they love uh, they love what they do and the stories that they have. Ruffa Nadal's driver, and I mentioned his name, Ian. Ruffa went to his house in Templestowe and had dinner. Oh, really? And Ruffa and his whole entourage. Ruffa has flown Ian over to Mallorca in Spain to sit down and have dinner and, and spend a weekend with Ruffa. Uh, Pretty special. This is the relationship. There isn't any other event in the world that has this kind of relationship from staff to athlete. And, that, and that's why they love coming in. You're the man who sees things behind the scenes. Come on, can you share a few stories about the greats as maybe as they walk out to to play that final from what you've heard, from what you've seen? Superstitions which come to play. Do they all wear the, the same socks they wore on the first day or do they change the racket because they need to change or restring the racket? Like, what's some of the magical things that we don't know that you may be able to share a little bit, which has really surprised you or brought joy to you? I, I've been like I've seen many things that you don't see publicly, but one thing I can say generally, the focus that these athletes have before they go into the court for a championship or winning this title, it's unbelievable. You look at it in the eyes, they only look one direction, it's straight ahead and a steely face and it's just an absolute concentration. Um, <clears throat> I've seen some of the some of the highlight moments for me, Ash and Yvonne hugging each other behind the scenes and just, <clears throat> just that picture of um, two great athletes after Ash won. I've seen after the finals that Novak and Rafa played that epic final nearly close to six hours. And uh, we don't allow any in the locker room afterwards except the athletes. And uh, and they both came off the court and I walked to the locker room. I, I left and I came back and they were both laying in the locker room uh, with their arms up right next to each other, you know, absolutely spent and exhausted. And it was like these two warriors had gone to battle and they were there just, you know, as two human beings. Rafa pulled his shoes and socks off and his feet just bleeding from the pain um, of the battle that he that he had, that he's been through. I've seen the uh, the elation that Roger Federer has had with his team on you know being injured and think he's been out and uh, the final that he beat Rafa in five sets after he was down in the fifth set, down a break in the fifth set and not expecting to win. And then the elation he had with his team and he had his whole team come in the locker room, his family and his his wife and his kids and. And the excitement that he had, and he was like a kid. He was just like a kid. Uh, the first, the first championship that that Novak Djokovic won, uh, we brought a Serbian band that had happened to by chance be playing out in the Oval. We brought them into the locker room, and uh, and all night uh, Novak and his team danced. We had to join them. I was pretty exhausted the next day. Uh, I learned a few moves, but uh, all night uh, Novak and the team danced in the locker room until the sun came up in the morning. That was his first Australian first Grand Slam title, and. Uh, you know, and I've seen the disappointment of, of players that have that have lost the final. I, you know, I remember the, I remember Caroline Wozniacki winning her only Grand Slam here and beating Simona Halep, but Simona Halep should have won it and was fully expected to win it. I've been behind the scenes when Lena has given her husband such a hard time <laughs> and such such abuse, but then I figured out that's what they normally do, and and it's part of Lena's maybe part of Lena's routine. And her husband loves it, and and they're both lovely people, and uh, and she's been a great champion. You know, so the list goes on and on. I've also seen our fans do some amazingly stupid things because we have so many cameras around site. You go to the central control and it's all on video and all on screens and you can watch what the fans are doing and say, I cannot believe a human being actually did that. I've seen a fan, you know, on the top of one of the arenas drop his flag down onto the, uh, down onto the top of a, of one of the bathrooms and him jump down and get it and completely fall through the roof and, and land in the toilet and, and, and smash his ankle, break his ankle and be carried out in the stretcher. So you've seen people do a lot of crazy things. 
And, uh, but the, but the overriding thing is just the absolute energy and the joy and the emotion, uh, that you get from the fans, but also you get from the players behind the scenes. And, and it's a, we are trying to bring our fans closer to behind the scenes because the experiences you get there are special. We've got lots of products this year where fans can buy and get to see more behind the scenes stuff. Is the sportsmanship still there? I think it is. I, I think in tennis it is. I think, you know, there's things that happen that, that people look at that it lacks sportsmanship, but those are moments. And uh, when someone throws a racket, you get angry. If you stand on the bottom of your rake and the rake handle hits you in the head, you're going to throw the rake because you're going to get angry to something that's stupid. I think tennis players go through that journey. I can honestly tell you all my dealings with them, um, some are closer to than I am with others. I, I consider, my, consider myself a friend to some of those great champions, and we are, we stay in touch. I like to be able to help our team. We've got a great team. They like to be able to help everyone. And, uh, and I can honestly say in this sport I can talk for is they're all great people and they all have their own individual goals, needs, desires, lives, and they treat us well and we treat them well. Where do you get the ideas from? Where do you make the time to think? Is it you traveling globally, popping into your competitors and watching their operations? Is it looking at other sports? Is it looking at entertainment? Is it bounce, bouncing around again with your team? Where do they come from? I, I think it's a, it's a good question. So from a leadership point of view, uh, I, I mean, I, 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 like to, I like to be the, par- the, sh- the shifter of the paradigm, the challenger of the status. And my view is as a leader, if you're always looking uh, for something different, something better, something unique, you're constantly challenging your mind to think creatively. To me, uh, great leaders are, are two things. They're great coaches and they're great creators. And, uh, and I think that those are two, two elements of leadership that you can learn um, on the journey. And, and I, get my, I get my motivation from watching others do it. And I've always said the definition of ideas is steal, baby, steal. Because everyone else has much better ideas than you have and, and no, one has, no one has ownership on any of them. And so uh, constantly seeking to get better, constantly improving, constantly looking at what other people are doing. And that, that's a practiced skill, by the way. Uh, people say, are you born with that? I think you can, I think you can practice that. I think if you, every single day you train yourself to be looking, thinking about ideas, looking for ideas, you have a lot of downtime by yourself, a lot of thinking time, but think what's possible. Um, I'll go home tonight and, and I'll have some, lots of, I mean, I could be multitasking with it, be washing up dishes or whatever. Um, and I will, and I, and I, and I like to do that because it's actually also thinking time and I'm thinking about, you know, what we need to be doing. And Craig, if you were to look back at that younger man growing up in South Africa and the old man not sure about you pursuing tennis, what advice would you give him now? Oh, you ask good questions. Um, I, I just, I don't know, I think I'd probably just say go for it. You know, what do you got to lose? Just go for it. Uh, and, but I'd, I'd probably also say choose something. If you can find something that you think you're going to love, it's much easier. Um, and if you don't find that, because passions and passions are, is, is, is an important part of your living equation. And I've always said to people is that if you're not passionate about something, find something to be passionate about, because every human being will find something to be passionate about. And don't spend your whole life not being passionate about something. And it can be the littlest things. It can be passionate about going for a walk or taking the dog or it doesn't matter what it is. Just be passionate about it. So, cause I think that gives you energy. So if you're lucky, if you're young enough and you're lucky, that's why I, th- I may be big believe in kids trying all different sports and activities so they can be passionate about something healthy. 
But if you if you uh, if you find something when you're young that you're passionate about, and then you pursue it along the lines of just going for it, uh, I think you'll be fine. Well, I wish you a great Australian Open, and on that, Craig, thank you for making the time today. It's been a real pleasure. No, it's been it's been a fun chat. Reflections are always fun chats, but now we need to get on and go forward and think about being proactive. Thank you very much. You've been listening to No Limitations. Mm-hmm.